Hello, friends, and welcome to season two of The Blue Room. It has been a while since we've been together in this space. Uh, Since that time, I have taken a sabbatical. I have released a book, Hope a User's Manual, and I have started a new call in a congregation. All exciting things. And one of the things that I love about podcasting is your seasons can be as long as you want them to be, and the break between seasons can be as long as you need them to be. And it's good to be back. I am excited about this season ahead of us. Uh, What I have put together for you all is designed to work kind of in tandem with the book, with Hope a User's Manual. I've put together some really great conversations with very cool, thoughtful people. And the idea is that there are six sections of the book and there are six episodes in this season. But I'm not so much commenting on the book. It's not that the guests and I are reading the book together or commenting on specific content in the book so much as having conversations that can stand alongside the ideas in each section. So if you're one of those who has read Hope a User's Manual, first of all, thank you. But also, I hope that these conversations will enhance the ideas in the book. But if you haven't read the book, that's fine too. I think these episodes will absolutely stand on their own. And I hope you enjoy the season as much as I have. Today, a conversation with my friend and frequent co-conspirator, Marthame Sanders. Marthame is an Atlanta-based podcaster, producer, musician, improviser, and consultant. He is a graduate of Yale University and the University of Chicago, and has served in ministry as international mission staff, a youth director, and a solo pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA. He is the producer and creative force behind AIJCast, a podcast at the intersection of art, inspiration, and justice, currently in its 21st season. Amazing. Marthame and I have worked together a few times in that free-range ministry space, especially around improv and leadership. We had some conversations recently that convinced me that he would be perfect for episode one, which stands alongside section one of the book called What Hope Is Not. And I thought he would be perfect for this slot because Marthame has some pretty good critiques to offer about this whole issue of hope and what it is and isn't. And I think he does some really important deconstructive work in our conversation. So let's get right to it. Here's Marthame Sanders. So this conversation came about because you and I, Marthame, have had some good opportunity to collaborate together recently. And I was talking Mm -hmm. about this book that had just come out and thinking about the issues of hope. And I can't remember exactly how you put it, but there was kind of a, (laughs) I want to push back kind of uh, yeah. energy. And I was like, bring it on. Because one yeah. of the reasons that I I wrote the book to kind of write myself back into a sense of hope mm. after a difficult few years, mm-hmm. but I'm not fully convinced myself that hope is essential, mm. always helpful. I yeah. So I, I, I wanted to, I was like, okay, don't say anything more. We're going to have a recorded conversation about this. <laughs> so I want to hear what sparked that comment that yeah. I may not even be remembering properly, but no, you are, you are. Yeah. I have had an interesting relationship with hope over the past few years. And a lot of it started with reading ta Coates book between the world and me, which is an open letter to his then infant son growing up black in the world of the United States. 
And in particular, he tackles this quote that has often been attributed to Martin Luther King Jr. of the moral arc of the universe is long but bends towards justice, which for me is a glimpse of hope and says, kind of keep at it, keep at the hard work of bending the world towards justice because we'll get there eventually. And it may not be in our lifetime, but we're getting there. And I have long labored with that as a guidepost. And Ta-Nehisi Coates quotes that quote and says that, in fact, what he believes is that the moral arc of the universe is chaos and ends in a box, meaning a casket. And whenever I encounter something like that that rejects one of my tenets, I immediately bristle and ignore it and throw it across the room. And I did. And then continued to kind of sit with it and then heard more and more about Coates's reaction to the question that he gets. Uh, Stephen Colbert, one of our favorite touchstones, asked him if he's hopeful. And he rejects that notion that that's not his job. His job isn't to look for hope, but also because hope, and I may be putting words in his mouth, but this is kind of my own return to it, is that hope lets us off the hook too easily sometimes. And some of that has to do with the way that we define hope, where I also came to this realization that a lot of my holding on to this notion of the moral arc of the universe bending towards justice was something that I could say out of a position of privilege, out of the multitude of intersections and identities that I inhabit as a cishet white dude living in the South, a Christian, educated, etc. And in the midst of all that wrestling, at one point said, okay, I'm going to let go of hope. And I don't know that hope and I have found our way back to each other. We're kind of dancing, you know, maybe courting a little bit if I want to push this metaphor into the ground. But I do remember saying that to my spiritual advisor and she was aghast. She was aghast at the idea Mm. that I had let go of hope. Wow. And so we processed that for a long time. She didn't want you to let you do that? No, 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 no. Yeah. And I think I just stopped bringing it up with her. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? I mean, spiritual directors are, in my experience of them, are such expansive. And and I'm I'm sure she is in many ways. Absolutely. So like 100%. But but that was a that was beyond was a, the solar system. Just It was just, a bridge too far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to pull Pl- Pluto back into the solar system. Right, right, planet right. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. I mean, she is. She has expanded my spiritual worldview in so many ways. And she's lovely. And I've worked with her for 15 years and will continue to do so as long as I can. And just realizing like that was something that was kind of beyond, yeah. was beyond the pale. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want you to get really concrete here and tell me when, when, what does it mean to let go of hope? What does that look like in in practice? What does that look like in mindset to, to let go of that? Yeah, it's in some ways largely an abstract exercise because, for example, I'm not preaching anywhere with any regularity. And yet, I think part of that was a realization that my preaching often would it would have, the sermon would have to end with hope in some way, shape, or form. I'd have to get to hope. I couldn't leave us in Good Friday. I would have to get us to Easter Sunday, right? And so I think some of what that did, it is, it made me stop asking the question, where is your hope? So I'm in conversations all the time, particularly around justice and particularly in the worlds of faith and on podcasts. And that was a regular question. Well, where is your hope? And I've stopped asking that question. Mm. 
also what it did was it freed me to be more engaged in the urgencies of this particular moment around injustice. Wow. That feels ironic to people, or I imagine it would be. Yeah. I I think there's a contradiction in there or a paradox or an oxymoron or something, but, but what it did was it made me let go of, I think, which is the easy and maybe the malformed hope that I had inherited of don't worry about things like Charlottesville and the Unite the Right rally. Don't worry about mass shootings. Don't worry about the criminalization of queerness. Don't worry about global warming because eventually it's all going to sort itself out. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. you've got to take all that stuff into account. Uh, the, the same people that would point to hope being something that is eschatological, something that is ever beyond our grasp that we continue to reach for would also say we're the ones we've been waiting for, right? Mm-hmm. That we become co-creators with God in this hopeful world. And yet, for me, there was something about that urgency of this isn't getting better. And in the short run, it certainly seems to be getting worse. That didn't leave me in a place of despair. Or That was the irony, right? It wasn't that letting go of hope sent me to hopelessness. It sent me to action. Mm. Right, right. One of my other thoughts about malformed hope or immature hope, or I don't know what phrase you want to use to describe it, is... It tends to come in two different packages. One is the when we're dead, things will be good kind of approach. Yep. And that was used, I mean, particularly with slave populations in the United States to just subdue slave populations. If you behave and obey your masters, you will feast in heaven. So there was no sense of thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven in that kind of worldview. So that's one, I think, malformed view of hope. The other is optimism, the idea that things are going well for me. And if they're not going well for me, then that's when I start to lose hope or lose faith, rather. There's the very serious notion of the the, the problem of evil in the world and God being omnipotent and all of that kind of stuff. There's also just the like, how can I have hope when I was in a car accident and now I have to get a new car? You know, without pointing to like all of the financial problems or anything, or like my health is fine, or I got out of it okay, or, you know, just that one little thing, if that throws you off your game, and if your game is going well, I got the car I wanted, if that's your source of hope, that is also malformed, immature hope. Right. So positivity, optimism, I think those are the two kind of versions, that and the when you die, everything will be okay. Those are the kind of the two malformed versions of hope to me. Mm-hmm. Well, this this might lead into one of the things I wanted to ask you is the the fact that you see those as malformed, and for the record, I do as well. When you read that Tanahazi Coates critique or or inversion of this arc of the moral universe, Martin Luther King, and you had that initial throw the book across the room, but then something in you resonated with that idea of at least setting hope aside or mm-hmm. or following the Coatesian way to see where that leads. And I'm curious if you can pinpoint something in your own life, history, psyche that primed you for that. Because I think some people would be like, well, that's interesting. But but Martin Luther King, you know, um, and and kind of ultimately bounce back to that. And and I'm not trying to say you you can't also inhabit both places at different times. But I'm curious kind of what what was it that helped that take root? That 
reading came along at a time where I had just left the church I had been pastoring for 11 years. And part of that was a sense of call to something that would be more explicitly engaged in the work of justice in the world. Not that congregations can't do that, but just given the context and my longevity there, it seemed like the right time to shift. And part of that was also being much more intentional about hearing voices and being in relationship with people whose identities were different than mine. Black and brown folk, queer folk, women, non-Christian, uh, non-American, etc. I mean, there have been aspects of that my whole life, but really that was part of what was happening then. And what I realized was what that quote, that quote from Coates was getting at was in some ways about an identity stripped of privilege. And if I was going to listen to and take seriously the witness of particularly in my context in Atlanta, black folk, it was going to move me out of that place of optimism. Because I was hearing things like encounters with the police that were very different from anything I had ever experienced. And if you just take that example, almost all of my encounters with the police as a driver of a vehicle have been predicated on the notion that when this is over, I might get a ticket, but things will be okay. Whereas most of my African-American friends, their encounters with police in vehicular situations are predicated on the idea of, I have to de-escalate this thing before it even starts right. with the maybe hope that things will end neutrally at least. Mm -hmm. So that really began to shift my worldview and realize, and made me realize like, wow, I, if, if I'm not, <laughs> I keep putting myself at the center of the universe. Maybe the universe is bigger than me. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if it is, then maybe it isn't this beacon of hope and possibility and optimism that I've thought it was. Mm -hmm. And so that just kept me returning to that particular thought again and again and again. Right. So I'm curious to switch gears a little bit. Uh, yeah. You worked as a mission coworker. Is that yeah. what the terminology was? Okay. So you were a mission coworker in Palestine for uh, some years. Three and a half years. Three and a half years. I, I'm curious how your experience there influences how you think about hope or or not hope or the people that you met. I mean, you know, I, I quote in the book, Mitri Raheb, who says, hope is yeah. what we do, right? I yeah. mean, hope is central. I think that's his mission statement, his affirmation yeah. of faith, his his yeah. tagline for, for his ministry, right? And I think he's certainly critiquing the malformed, sure. anemic Absolutely. kind of hope, right? 100%, but, yeah. And I'm not He's I'm not a asking. pragmatist and as pragmatic yeah. as they come at the same time. Yeah. Right. So I, I don't want to put you in, in opposition to him, but I want to put that alongside what you, you know... Because we all have to find what works for us, but but I'm curious, yeah, kind of the people I, you encountered there and how that experience plays into all this. I think that reminds me of something that I probably should have said up front, which is I don't intend any of this to be prescriptive. This right. is what works for me, full stop, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. And alongside that, kind of a, a, a corollary to that is I'm never going to question someone else's journey with hope. I may push and prod at 
hope that I think needs some help with maturity, but I'm not going to say to anyone else, you need to let go of hope too. That was not what I was saying to my spiritual director. Right. And realizing, you know, the more desperate the situation you live in, hope may be a very real way of survival. And who am I to question that? I'm particularly struck by something. This is making me think of farmers in the Hebron Valley outside of the city of Hebron, which is probably the most desperate place in the West Bank. It is where the settlers are the worst of the worst. They not only see themselves as God's anointed to take each and every inch of that little strip of land for themselves, but they also see that the Palestinians that are there need to be cleansed, removed. It could be outright genocide. It could be financial removal. I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities, but in Hebron, it's as bad as it gets. And one of these farmers who's subject to constant harassment from really outrageous, radical, militant settlers said to some of the Christian peacemaker teams, the Mennonite folk that are there in Hebron, that we are giving up as slowly as possible. And I don't know that that's hope, but there's something in that. There's a persistence and a dogged determination that I do not have. I am stubborn, but if I were facing what they were facing, I would have taken the check and left. And yet for them, there was something about being rooted to that place for centuries of ancestors that made them say, we're giving up as slowly as possible. Mm. You know, one of my regrets in writing, in how the book came out, is that I didn't get nearly as much Lord of the Rings in there as I thought I would. And <laughs> there's all kinds of, in fact, I asked a, a Sunday school group the other the other week, what are books, movies, TV shows that you that you go to if you find yourself in need of a little bit of hope and somebody yeah. lifted up Lord of the Rings and it wasn't my good. It wasn't the thing I thought of first, which is weird because it's, it's part of my it's theology. Part of, it's part of your, yeah, it's part of your maybe secondary sacred text. That's yeah. right. And, and there's, there's of course, Sam's speech, which is, you know, we do this because we believe that there's good in this world and it's worth fighting for. It's not about, yeah outcome. It's not about, and, and that's kind of, I think the one that a lot of, of yeah. people kind of, but, but actually the one that I, that stirs me the most is when Theoden is leading the people out to uh, the people of Rohan who are going to be facing the Urukai where they are, are vastly outnumbered. And, and he says, if this is to be our end, I would have them make such an end as to be worthy of remembrance. Mm-hmm. And there's something about giving up as slowly as possible in that, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and then, again, we have the Hollywood ending, right? Where they, yeah. you know, Gandalf comes and, of course, they win, right? And Is it I would, the Black Knight and Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Great. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I'm going right, to fight. All to draw. I'm going to fight until there's no fight left in me. Or, I mean, in Rogue One, yeah. we will keep, I'm paraphrasing, keep taking chances until all our chances are spent. We are We're going to fight back with everything we have, even if all we have left is delay. We're just going to grind the gears slowly, you know, and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. give up as slowly as possible. I find that ironically hopeful, right? I mean, that's that's what I think is Interesting. hope, right? 
I'm struck by, you mentioned kind of popular culture films, that kind of thing. And there were two things that I revisited recently, both by Ava DuVernay. One was the series When They See Us about the Central Park Exonerated Five. And at the end, there is a parallel piece. It's on Netflix and there's a parallel piece where Oprah and Ava DuVernay talk to the actors, but also talk to the men themselves. And there's one of the men, Antron McRae, who refuses to be hopeful. And Oprah cannot let it go. (laughs) She's the spiritual director saying, what? Yeah. What he's doing is he is, by virtue of being just totally authentic and saying that he's a mess, the system has broken him, etc. And he can't forgive his father and all the, you know, he's very, very blunt and hardened. And the other four guys have found ways to be lithe in this world in really amazing ways and robust. And they love him and are still friends and are close with him. But there was something about that annoyance in the way that I interpret it was Oprah was kind of annoyed with this guy for refusing to be the shiny ending that Oprah tends to look for in the world. Mm. So there was that. The other was Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th, which presents a very, very compelling picture of how white supremacy in the United States is so powerful and robust and adaptive that even when slavery is abolished, there's still a loophole. That even when we change prison sentencing in order to help out people who aren't violent offenders, it still manages to target black folk more than white folk. So all of the, I mean, it's a really well-made argument. And she talks about the the ending. Her intention originally with the ending was to have all of her talking heads appear at the end, and they would have been unnamed throughout the whole piece. And then at the very end to say, my name is Brian Stevenson. I am the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. My name is Grover Norquist, and I am the founder of the No Taxes Ever organization, whatever his thing is. Right. And they did a test audience with that and realized that what that did was it let people off the hook who were watching because they looked at it and they said, Oh, these people have it. The experts have it. Nice. So it became this kind of malformed hope. What she did instead. And I love this. What she did instead was she put a song by the rapper common as the tag at the very end with scenes of black joy and put joy instead of hope. And while giving up as slowly as possible isn't that, there is something about joy in the midst of that. It's the persistence of people to have children and get married and buy land and plant olive trees and reap the land that they have planted and continue and continue and continue and continue Mm. because there is joy in the midst of it. Mm. And when there's joy, particularly at the margins, that to me... That may be what hope looks like for me Mm. in the end. I mean, I I love this thread that that maybe for those of us for whom we we want to hope hold hope lightly or maybe jettison it for a while or forever. What what does that provide space for? And joy may be one of those things. Joy in the right right here and now. It could be. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like when people would ask me, what was that like when you lived in Palestine? Which is, you know, always an interesting question. And the assumption is that must have been really hard. And it was. 
I mean, I saw some of the most grotesque forms of injustice I have ever seen meted out on people who were just trying to live lives. And that persists as memory alongside deep relationships and experiences of ridiculous hospitality. Palestinians who scraping to get by and yet still open their homes to my spouse and me with extravagant meals. People who continued to call me their brother, not as a societal nicety, but genuinely meant it. Spaces at tables and altars and in sacred and holy grounds like churches, attending baptisms and funerals and weddings. All of these things were mixed together. So it wasn't monolithic. We're back to the duality, right? It, it was not a monolithically horrific time. In fact, it was incredibly wonderful. And those two things can coexist, wonder and horror. You and I have been able to collaborate in a lot of different ways. And one of the, the sweet spots where we've done things together is around improv and improvisation mm -hmm. as a, a life practice, a spiritual practice, a way of being in the world that's chaotic, you know, in a way of being in a chaotic world and sometimes responding to chaos with chaos. Yes. Or bringing a little bit of, of nimbleness to that chaos. And I'm curious how the sensibility of improv interacts with your ideas about hope or, hmm. or, or not hope or holding it lightly or letting it go. That's a great question. I think where I am right now with improv as a practice is that it is ultimately about discovery and possibility. That there is this vast unknown when two people walk on stage together to begin a scene. And they may have a suggestion from the audience to work with. Something will come out of that. Somebody's got to step out and say the first thing or do the first action. And eventually these two people will find out what that thing is. And then eventually the lights are going to have to go out. So it comes to a conclusion. It doesn't live forever. To me, that's the beauty of improv. And I'm finding, I'm trying to find ways to use that in creative spaces as well of what is the possibility we're given this thing, whatever it is, we take that as a gift, we find the possibility within it, and we discover the deeper meaning of the gift. So I don't know that that's hope, but maybe it is. One of the things I've been playing with is the idea that I, I think we think about hope as, as something that happens out in the future, or that we are right. we're pointed towards the future. And maybe the kind of hope that I'm interested in or contending with is very much in the here and now. To me, hope, if it is, as you said, that malformed of like, you know, in the sweet by and by, I don't have much use for that. What I need is something that's going to help me live right now. And if I need to let go of hope in order to live right now, I will. But I also think that at its best, at its most beautifully formed, it is now. It's it's present oriented. And I think that's what I love about improv too, is one next right thing at a time or one next thing. It may not be right. It just may be what's next. We get somewhere that's different. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. I, I have talked about the work that I'm doing in this free range form of saying yes to the right things that have been put in front of me. And that is an improv move, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think some of that has led me to possibilities that have meant that I could pay the bills. And some of that have led me into relationships that have expanded my way of seeing the world. 
reading things, watching things that I never would have encountered otherwise that have challenged me to do things like let go of hope and find a deeper rootedness in the work of God. Maybe that's where I'll end it. Thank you so much for joining us in the Blue Room and huge thanks to Marthame Sanders. Check out AIJCast wherever you get your podcasts or connect with him at his website, mudif.com. That's M-U-D-E-I-F.com. You can also check out my website, MarianneMcKibbenDana.net. And if you liked this episode, please subscribe, share, rate, and review. I'm Marianne McKibben Dana, speaking to you from Reston, Virginia, the ancestral land of the Manahoac people. This podcast was produced and edited by Caroline Dana and Mel Dana. Thank you, as always, for listening. Steady on.